Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, I turn my attention not to the works of Stephen King, but the works of his son, Joe Hill, um, an author who, yes, happens to be the son of Stephen King, but is also a well-renowned and very strong writer in his own right, one who am I a, a, a big fan of. I reviewed most of his works. I've reviewed Nosferatu, Horns, and 20th Century Ghosts on this po- and The Fireman on this podcast. I have yet to review Heart-Shaped Box, which is something that I definitely want to revisit, um, and Lock and Key, which is something that I'll definitely be doing at some point. So I am a longtime fan of Joe Hill, and when I had heard that he was going to be coming out with a new collection of not short stories, but four short novels, I was very, very excited because anyone that listened to my 20th Century Ghosts review knows how much I believe in Joe Hill when he tackles concepts um, in the in the short story realm. Uh, his work in 20th Century Ghost um, pop art is my favorite piece of, of fiction, of uh, written fiction. That's that's how strong his his talent is when he dabbles in the shorter form, which is not to say that he is untalented um, at the longer works. I just believe that he hasn't quite hit the level of um, he just hasn't hit his peak yet. Um, now, with that said, Fireman and Nosferatu horns horns is fantastic. Um, and Twentieth Century Ghost, they are all better than most people, most um, authors. Uh, but I still feel that he has yet to really maximize his talents which is nothing but it sounds like a criticism really it's just it's 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 a major compliment because if he's this good now i can't wait to see how much better he's going to get every year that goes by so make a long story short i was very very excited um when strange weather was was coming out and uh you know i have long documented um to this dismay of of some listeners out there but i've long documented um the process of the stephen king cast um recently i have moved um, and the moving process uh, definitely ate into a lot of the time where otherwise I would have spent being able to, to read and put down some thoughts and some notes and then record the podcast. So unfortunately, that, that pushed everything back a lot longer than I would have liked. Um, so I didn't actually get a chance to start reading Strange Weather until um, Christmas. That was my Christmas gift to myself. Um, and I'd make a long story short... I am loving it, and it is everything that I wanted it to be. We have four uh, 
glimpses into the mind of Joe Hill's imagination. Um, each one of these stories could not be any more different from the one that preceded it. These are four stories that are, are very uh, just dissimilar from really anything that he's written, um, but still, you know, you can see that he's operating within his, his wheelhouse while pushing into... Um, especially one story he's pushing into new territory um and i'll I'll definitely get get into that in in a little bit but uh i'm very very excited to talk about uh strange weather today uh but first i want to read some itunes reviews because as you know i can't do it without you guys um so i i don't have many i only have two itunes reviews so uh the first one is from bird ones who writes great podcast right here and now The host has such a natural speaking flow, like an excellent literature professor who is excited and passionate about the subject he teaches. I'm a big Stephen King fan. This is the type of podcast that I've been searching for. Please keep making episodes. King has so much material. Hope you speak about the talisman if you haven't already. Um, So Bird Ones, thank you so much. Thank you for writing in. And yes, I have... um, discuss the talisman you'll just have to go back keep in mind that this is in the chronological order of publication so that's that's really the easiest way where you can find um the older episodes just head backwards head um to the beginning of the feed and work your way um work your way up and then you'll you'll definitely find the the talisman and the bonus episode in which i explore possible connections to the dark tower mythology and then we have rick urban who writes, enjoyable podcast. Um, I generally enjoy hearing the opinions of this reviewer. However, one request, please stop playing music while reading the synopsis of a title. Um, It's way too difficult to understand what you're saying with this completely unnecessary background accompaniment. Um, So that is a... um, that is some feedback that I've received before. Um, so I'm, I'm. What I need to do is I need to find the right balance um, because some listeners do really enjoy it, and others it, it kind of drives them nuts. So I need to. I think that what I need to do. What I need to do is just play with the the volume levels and make sure that it doesn't drown out. But I, I do hear you, um, and Rick Urban, you will not be hearing any. Um, music uh, during the Wikipedia summaries of these uh, short stories or short novels because from Wikipedia the uh, synopses of each of these novels is literally one sentence long. So uh, you will not be hearing any music uh, today. So guys, if you haven't done so already, please uh, head on over to iTunes and leave a review because it could really, really help me out. you know, right now, uh, 2017, Stephen King was that, – that was a big year for Stephen King, and there's a lot of Stephen King podcasts out there, which is great. It's great. Um, but I, I definitely, you know, with the amount of time that I've put in the Stephen King cast, I still would like Stephen King cast to be um, at the top um, or near the top of the searches, and I, I can't do that unless um, I get some reviews. So if you haven't done so, a review would really, really help me out. And if you haven't done so, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Um, by doing so, we're able to open up a, a conversation and a dialogue, and I'll be able to share your thoughts about Stephen King um, on the air and, and get your thoughts out there to the rest of the members of our Akata. So guys, looking into the future, let's look ahead um, towards the spring and summer um, of the Stephen King cast. Here is what we can expect. All right. So we can expect me to tackle the remaining stories that I never got around to in his short story collections from Skeleton Crew, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, 
um, just after sunset. Everything's eventual. Um, Am I missing one? I'm definitely missing one. Um, But all of the short story collections that I never got around to. So all of those I'm going to tackle. There are some movies that I need to discuss as well, including Dolan's Cadillac. Um, I know that that one I'm definitely ready to discuss. Um, And there will be others. So I'm going to be definitely tackling some movie adaptations that I never got around to the first time. Um, This spring and summer, I will um, also begin looking at some of the novellas that I never touched the first time around, um, which includes uh, The Breathing Method, which has been uh, requested from longtime listeners, and there's a lot of people upset that I never touched that the first time around. So I'll be able to, to take care of that um, this spring and summer. So we have a lot of really strong, really chewy Stephen King material to tide us over, um, <clears throat> you know, un- until we start getting some more uh, Stephen King movies um, and adaptations. I'm sure we'll start getting some news on uh, It Chapter 2, which I'm very, very excited about. I really want them to make an announcement soon that Jessica Chastain has been cast as Bev. I think that that would be great. <laughs> Um, and then this May, The Outsider by Stephen King will be published, so make sure that you look forward to uh, a review of that. Oh, and hopefully I'll be able to um, check out Mr. Mercedes. The, the two episodes that I watched, I loved. I really loved. And um, this was definitely a highlight of Stephen King on the small screen uh, this year. So I know that it got all the attention, but Mr. Mercedes... For me, those of you who listened to my review of Mr. Mercedes know that it wasn't my favorite of, of King's works, uh, but the, the, the television series that I saw, the two episodes, I, they were really, really strong. So it was a collaboration between uh, David E. Kelly and Jack Bender, two masters of their craft um, who just know how to tell a solid story, and I think that they took the concept that, that King presented to us and they really fine-tuned it. So I'm really looking to um, revisit that and and explore that. So keep your eyes open for um, upcoming episodes in which hopefully I'll be able to, uh, you know, finish off the first season of Mr. Mercedes. And also, I have been thinking more and more about Stranger Things season two since I finished my season two um, uh, general thoughts. Um, And I'm still open to an episode by episode review. So I'm not ruling it out. So keep your fingers crossed that that's something that that happens uh, down the road. And like I said, I've got lock and key that I need to touch and um, heart shaped box by Joe Hill. So there's definitely there's definitely stuff that that I need to talk about here on the Stephen King cast. So I know that the episodes have been um, they haven't been as frequent as I would have liked and probably as you would have liked. But you're going to get Stephen King cast uh, this spring and summer. And also this summer, um, I will be launching, spring or summer, um, I will be launching a, a second podcast out there. It will not get in the way of the Stephen King cast. I guarantee you that. It will be a limited uh, podcast. I'm still tooling around with what the structure was going to be like. I do believe it's going to be very similar in structure to the Stephen King cast, but it will be a Twin Peaks The Return podcast in which I really put together um, 
an argument and a thesis and really start to look at the themes that Mark Frost and David Lynch put together for all of us with the 18-hour magnum opus of David Lynch's career, really, uh, which was Twin Peaks The Return or Twin Peaks Season 3. It really is its own thing. So if you look at Twin Peaks... Uh, Long-time listeners know that I'm a huge Twin Peaks fan. If you look at Twin Peaks, really this is the conclusion of a trilogy. We had the original Twin Peaks with Season 1 and Season 2, and then we had uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, and then now we had Twin Peaks The Return. And each one of these pieces of the trilogy function um, as its own thing um, and complement one another and make us question the the other two pieces in in very unique... I just said very unique. I hate when people do that. But in unique and... interesting ways. So I am very, very excited to to head into the world of Twin Peaks. I will step through the curtains and I will give you all of my thoughts on what Mark Frost and David Lynch um, gave us. Uh, So I'm excited for that. We'll have 18 hours of that. I will not necessarily be reviewing the uh, Secret History of Twin Peaks and the final dossier, the final dossier written by Mark Frost. I will touch upon it in in my reviews of each episode, um, but I won't necessarily just review each one. Um, I might do a review of Firewalk with Me, um, but as of right now, I don't have plans to review season one or season two of Twin Peaks. I might do it after the return um, if there is. Uh, interest in that from people. If they liked my review of Twin Peaks The Return, then yeah, I might um, go through all of the the Twin Peaks episodes and see how they um, speak to the the conclusion of this particular story. Um, Because I think that looking at seasons one and two in retrospect of what the conclusion of this series is, is, is very interesting. So I know there's been a lot of uh, Twin Peaks podcasts out there, um, but they were really um, examinations of each episode as they aired week to week. And I think that it's, it's, it's interesting to be able to look at the return as a whole um, and, and just really examine it as, as one piece, one chapter at a time. So as of right now, uh, the the working title for the podcast will be Hanging with Agent Cooper. I'm not joking. I, I really think that I'm going to be sticking with Hanging with Agent Cooper. So anyone out there that has uh, any artistic ability um, and you are a Twin Peaks fan, uh, could you please whip me up a Hanging with Mr. Co- I'm sorry, Hanging with Agent Cooper logo, uh, so I can um, submit it to iTunes and get the the ball rolling there. That would be greatly appreciated. And um, I've already had two emails sent to me um, about Twin Peaks, so I will read them on air during the first episode um, of the Hanging with Agent Cooper. So uh, if you have any thoughts on Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks The Return, Fire Walk With Me, um, Seasons 1, Season 2, What Twin Peaks or David Lynch or Mark Frost means to you, uh, please write in at Stephen Kingcast. I will create a separate email for Hanging with Agent Cooper um, at some point, but for right now, you can still email me at um, stephenkingcast at yahoo.com because I would love to, to just do for the world of Twin Peaks what I have been able to do with fans of, of Stephen King here at the Stephen King cast. So 
With all that said, we have a lot to look forward to this spring and summer. But for right now, um, what I want to do in the here and now, I want to turn my attention to Joe Hill and his most recent collection, Strange Weather, which came out uh, this October, and we have four short stories. I will be reviewing each of these short novels in the, the order in which they appear in the collection, which brings us first to Snapshot. And from Wikipedia, um, Snatch, the, the review of Snapshot, or the, the, the summary of Snapshot is this. In Silicon Valley in 1988, a young man finds himself stalked by a man with a Polaroid camera that can erase memories. Um, And it is a shame that that's all that we get from Wikipedia um, because there are so many, there's so much more to this story than just that. But, you know, I'll see what I can cover in my review. So what's great about this is that like the best works of his father, uh, Joe Hill here, he he grounds the supernatural elements in something very, very familiar. Um, and what we have here is the Polaroid camera. Now, a Polaroid camera, it's just a camera. It's an inanimate object. It should be harmless, right? Just like a St. Bernard, it's just a dog. A car is just a car, or a hotel for that matter, or a cell phone, uh, the inability to sleep, a milkman, a lawnmower man, a a flock of sparrows, or a new shop that opened down the road. It it, it doesn't matter. Uh, Stephen King has built his career on taking everyday objects or concepts and turning them on their head, whether it be, like I said, St. Bernard is just a dog, he turns it into Cujo. A car is just a car for anybody else, but for Stephen King, it's... Uh, Christine or Buickate. Um, a hotel could just be a hotel, but for Stephen King, it's the overlook. A cell phone, the dread of the cell phone was explored in Cell and Inability to Sleep. Um, the, the concept was explored in Insomnia. A milkman, we saw two stories about milkman, the lawnmower man, um, not talking about the movie. A flock of sparrows, of course, we see uh, in the dark half with great uh, imagery. A new shop that opened down the road is Needful Things. Um, So he has so many examples of this, and uh, Joe Hill continues that tradition to great effect here uh, because the Polaroid camera, even though it's not a Polaroid, it's a Solaroid, it, uh, it, 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 it creates that same level of, of dread. The same way that David Lynch was able to take a ceiling fan and be able to turn that into a symbol of all things evil and horrific that happen in everyday life. So, um, you know, it, it just showed me right away that through the narration of this, this, this character who is looking back on the events of his childhood... Um, what we are given here is a snapshot um, of his life. I mean, it is, in essence, the the written expression of a Polaroid uh, um, camera picture. And we are able to to get his life and um, we are able to get the, the, the journey that, that he takes to becoming a young man um, with the backdrop of the supernatural. Now, this is just, it, it escalates beautifully. Um, you know, like I said, we, we, may, we meet this main character, um, Mike, uh, who is really just your, your typical everyday 80s kid, 
um, with one exception, he is a little genius, and to 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 watch him tinker, um, though it is rooted in the 1980s, this really speaks to 21st century life and how we're trying to push our children in all the right ways to be innovators and to be builders and to use their creativity and and their imaginations to to make and invent and to think outside the box, and we see that here. Um, with Michael, um, who is a, a very smart young man. And as we see later in the story, you know, he will, will turn that um, into a, a life of innovation as an adult. Um, but as a child, it's still rooted in invention, in an innovative nature, in curiosity, in creativity, and childhood play. And the, the, the imagery that's on display here um, is just so effective. I, I, I mean, he, he just goes toe-to-toe with his dad. Um, and there's, there's just many times here in which he's able to, to work his dad into the corner in terms of just sheer writing ability. So, I mean, the, the, the constant building of the storm clouds in the story, the, the, the way that, that Shelley... Um, walks in front of the the house and her image is framed um, through the garage door, which in itself looks like a Polaroid photo. There's so many examples of, 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 of that type of thought that occurs within the story, which shows just how effective he is at writing. Um, to the, the deterioration of, of Shelley's mind, which in any other story could just be the relationship between a young boy and um, you know his caretaker who is slowly losing her mind, um, and that is the heart of it. It just so happens that, like I said, it has this this backdrop of a supernatural threat forcing a young man into adulthood, which we have seen before in the works of of Stephen King. So let's talk about the Polaroid Man. That is Shelley's name for this character, later called the Phoenician. A great name, great villainous name by Mike. Um, the, the the first time we hear his name, you know, it, it's it's one of those names. You know, it it I don't know. It it, it it's like the Crimson King. Um, you know, the, these names that that both Hill and Stephen King are able to create um, are are just so. They just they they, they, they they just roll off the tongue like the gas mask man in Nosferatu. Um, it just works so well, and it paints such a vivid picture, and it allows you even before we meet this character to um, create our image of what the Polaroid man is. And he's presented to us first as this boogeyman figure that is um, really just stealing the memories and stealing the life out of Shelley. And when we do meet him. Um, he is not a boogeyman. He is very much a human being. Um, and, you know, I just love how his description of him is that he's an ugly man um, wearing all black. Um, but he isn't he doesn't have that rugged handsomeness of like a like a Randall flag. Right. You know, I mean, there's something that is just plain um, uh, about him, which I like. It humanizes him. And, it, you know, and, and by humanizing him, it also highlights his inhumanity when we see him later preying on, on Shelley. Um, you know, uh, so the, 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 the continuation here of the Polaroid man just shows that, you know, it, 
how even in, in a short novel like this, Hill is able to imbue his characters with so much characterization. You know, he becomes this boogeyman at first, but we start to see him more as he transitions from the Polaroid man to the Phoenician, um, you know, meeting him for the first time. Um, we learn that his camera isn't necessarily a Polaroid. It's a Solarid or a Solaroid. Um, the argument in the convenience store when he takes the picture of the, the, the employee at the, 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 the convenience store, we start to see the effect that this camera has um, and the claims that, that Shelley has made against the Polaroid man start to, um, you know, start to uh, take uh, more uh, realization here as we see exactly what she was talking about. Um, this is really all this comes down to. It's just an effective trail of mystery and suspense that every time this um, this man is mentioned, you know, his his shadow looms larger. Um, and even when we met, meet him and he might be a little underwhelming by design, um, the effect of his camera more than makes up for that. And we see that it's the camera, not the man that is the true evil here. Um, or I would say the, the true supernatural threat, um, because the man definitely is 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 horrific and evil and uh you know just the fact that it can take your memories away um there's a lot to be said that i'll speak of in in a little bit you know and then the the imagery continues from the the coming of the rainstorm the threat of the phoenician you know when michael is at shelley's house oh and he realizes that um the blue lightning flashes are not being followed by thunder and they're coming from inside the house that is just good storytelling that his boogeyman that he was afraid of the one that would come for him the one that he was afraid would come for Shelley actually is here is inside the house and his worst fears are are, are manifesting themselves it's so potent storytelling and like the best of um, Stephen King child characters confronting the supernatural threats um, Mike falls into into that category and stands alongside the likes of Jack Sawyer and Jake Chambers and all of the Losers Club um, because he immediately bursts into the bedroom and confronts the, 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 the Phoenician. And how magical is it that, you know, he's able to defeat a supernatural weapon with really an imaginary one when he uses his cosmic ray gun which he had been working on going back to that innovation that i was talking about he's able to startle the phoenician until he's able to take the the camera away from the phoenician and start taking pictures until he turns him into a vegetable and it's um, both triumphant and sad at the same time, because as he's doing this, he's losing that childhood um, part of himself. He is really being thrust into adulthood at this moment by confronting this evil that has come to um, attack the woman that had essentially been, you know, his mother. And by doing this, he is he is forced into an adult role. Um, so I thought that that was that was really interesting and and done very well. Um, you know, and then, you know, time goes by. We, you know, watch Michael, you know, live his life, um, you know, away from, you know, the, the, the Phoenician and the supernatural threat. Um, and we learn more about Shelley being in the home um, until we get the, um, the moment where he 
He walks into her room, and Joe Hill writes, I kissed her forehead, breathing deep the fragrance of the room where she'd spent the last years of her life. Dust, fevers, rust, neglect. If I was wretched at that moment, it was not because I'd point the camera at her, but because I'd waited so long to do it. And there's no malice there. It isn't saying that the camera had taken hold of him, but it's really speaking to the, the struggle that people have when their loved ones have become infirm and have lost themselves in sickness and poor health, dementia, Alzheimer's, cancer. Um, and it's just that he is able to present this to us through the lens of a supernatural, um, literally a supernatural camera. But the truth there is in the everyday, with an everyday struggle that so many people have to go through. Um, and that's why the story works as well as it does, is because if you strip away all the supernatural events, it really is a story of a boy and his mother figure um, and having to accept the, um, the life that she has lived, you know, even though it is in the end a tragic one and having to say goodbye. Um, we don't always get the, the happy endings that, that, we, that we look for, and that's the tragedy of life. Um, and then he breaks the camera, okay? And what we get here when he breaks the camera is both Lovecraftian and reminiscent of Lock and Key. The, between the illustration from um, his Lock and Key collaborator, um, Gabriel Rodriguez, uh, it, it, it just looks like, well, spoiler alert for Lock and Key, but it looks like, um, it looks like certain creatures that we see in, um, in that uh, comic book, um, but at the same time, it is also just very, very Lovecraftian. Um, and that's, and that's, that's really snapshot. You know, he, uh, he grows up, he has a family of his own, and he uses the, the material from the, the, the Polaroid camera, the Solaroid camera, to um, invent and, you know, help out Apple and um, become a, a billionaire himself. So of the stories here in um, Strange Weather, this one is a relatively happy ending. So I just want to talk a little bit about the good writing because I, I, I didn't organize my thoughts here necessarily. Uh, I just wanted to take a snapshot, and I thought that that was appropriate, of just the strong examples of writing that, that we get here. So, for instance, he writes, If ghosts have a color, then they are the color of an August thunderstorm getting ready to break. The sky was the exact filthy gray Polaroid just beginning to develop. You know, I mean, this is why Joe Hill is Joe Hill. And then he writes, maturity is not something that happens all at once. It is not a border between two countries where once you cross the invisible line, you are on the new soil of adulthood, speaking the foreign tongue of grown-ups. It is more like a distance broadcast, and you are driving toward it, and sometimes you can barely make it out, out of the hiss of static, while other times... The reception momentarily clears, and you can pick up the signal with perfect clarity. 
So it goes back to the fact that he is writing um, about the coming of age of this one particular kid. And so segments like this are so important because he keeps giving us these, these snippets, these snapshots of, of life and truth and wisdom. And then he writes, when she is asleep, she looks like her old self. Sometimes I think in her dreams she gets it all back. The path to her old self is overgrown, lost in the briars, but her sleeping mind. Do you think, Michael, the sleeping mind has a path of its own? Trails the walk the waking self has never walked? That's just beautiful. And then he wrote, the, thunderstor- the thunderheads had blown off to the east, coming apart into mountainous islands. The sky to the west was a bright burning gold, darkening to a deep red along the horizon, a hideous shade, the color of a human heart. It was a hideous hour. There is no system of measurement that can adequately quantify how much resentment I carried in my heart when I was young and lonely. My sense of personal grievance ate me like cancer, hollowed me out, left me gaunt and wasted. I set off for MIT at 18. I weighed 330 pounds. Six years later, I was a buck 70. It wasn't exercise. It was fury. Resentment is a form of starvation. Resentment is the hunger strike of the soul. And then the, just the last bit that I want to talk about um, is uh, Shelley's husband who writes, Invent a way not to get old, he said. It's a terrible goddamn trick to play on someone. Getting old is no way to stop being young. Guys, I kept going back to that line over and over again, just turning it over in my head, you know. And there's some people that you'll meet, you know. It's just so funny to, to look at people. There are people in their 60s who have the, you know, the, the vitality of, of people in their, their 30s. You got people in their 30s who walk around like old curmudgeons, you know. Old and being young are two different things, Um and getting old is no way to stop being young is such a beautiful, beautiful line. Um, and in essence, in the end, uh, Michael does just that. Michael helps create the iPhone. And as I am talking right now, uh, my iPhone is next to me. It is staring at me with its Black Mirror. By the way, um, Black Mirror Black Mirror Season 4 just dropped on Netflix a little while ago. Um, and I, I just... The, the, the title of, the Bla- of Black Mirror is so brilliant that it speaks to the fact that any electronic screen, when shut off, is a Black Mirror. It, it's just... Of all of the genius things about Black Mirror, that might just be the most. Anyway, so my Black Mirror is staring at me right now. So the, the thing that, that Michael you know, helped create um, is staring at me. Uh, and I feel the need to capture every moment on camera. You know, I, I am my daughter's personal photographer, and I follow her around wherever she goes, and I'm capturing nearly every moment of the day on camera. Now I'm doing that thing that so many people talk about uh, when I, there is criticism out there that you should put the camera down and just be in the moment. And it's hard to do because we have this technology at our disposal where we can capture so much. And you know, previous generations had 
uh, Polaroids. We had disposable uh, cameras. I remember I used to use disposable cameras all the time. We had cameras, you know, where we had to like load the film, and all of these. They took time, and they were they were limited resources, and it cost money, and it limited the amount of pictures that that that, that you could take. So, um, and then the, the cameras. Don't get me started on, on what the, the cameras used to be, like video cameras. So, you know, fortunately for me, um, but unfortunately at the same time, I'm living in an age where I can document everything, and just she's growing so fast. It is unbelievable, and that's something that I you you always hear. And then anyone out there that has a a child or is expecting a child, you, you know that you've heard it before that it goes so fast. And but it's true; it's very very true. Um, and a noise that she makes um, for a, a period of time, you think that you're going to hear it forever. But you realize that that noise that she might be making, a little song that she might be singing, a, a tonal inflection that she's making, um, isn't going to last forever. It's really just going to be a matter of days where she's trying out new variations of her vocal cords, um, and she'll never make that sound again in her life. And the fact that I have the ability to capture it, um, it, it, it really means something because she is going to live a very, very long life. Um, and for the majority of her life, she will be, um, you know, an adult with formed opinions. Um, and, you know, hopefully she'll constantly be curious and creative and reflective and will, you know, constantly seek ways for her to be her best self and, and grow and evolve and adapt as necessary. But, I, you know, adults for the most part are, I don't want to say unchanging, but the, the, the great transformations have already come in their lives. Um, so to see her constantly develop and, and see her explore new things and try out new words and become obsessed with, uh, you know, different stuffed animals or, or characters and uh, just idiosyncrasies that are never going to last to know that I can capture them and hold on to them forever. Um, you know, it means something to me. So reading Snapshot, it was a very personal experience because Snapshot is a commentary on, on the life that we are living. Um, and it's interesting that the gift that we have been given with our cell phones um, we are where we are able to capture all of these moments in our lives. How many um, great meals we've eaten? Um, how many pictures of us, uh, you know, against the backdrop of uh, a, a tourist trap or a, a a sunset or on top of a mountain or against a you know a national park. Um, or a national monument, um, or a selfie with, you know, our best friends or our, our, our animals or, you know, what have you. We're able to capture our moments in ways we had never been able to, you know, have happened before. Um, and within this story, within this world, that is in part, um, mostly in part because of the foul creature that had lived with inside the Polaroid, um, the Solaroid. So, to know that this happy ending that we get between father and son, um, knowing that 
the, 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 the dream of Shelley's husband, that his wish to Michael um, to, um, to invent a way to not get old, which is what happens here when we capture every moment of our lives on camera. We are able to capture youth and vitality. We are able to, to, to capture the past and keep it in the present for always. That's a way of not getting old. Though there is beauty to it, and though there is hope there, and though it's in many ways a positive thing, the fact that the fundamental components are from an alien entity can't, I can't help but shake that there's that commentary there that we are spending too much time on our phones, and that there is an insidiousness there when we spend most of our times looking at that screen and looking through lives, looking through the world um, through that screen. Um, you know, that, that me, rather than, you know, just spending time with my daughter or just playing with her, I am playing with her, and then I will point my phone at her and look at her through my phone. Yeah, that's not entirely good. Um, it's great that I'm able to capture all those moments, but I am well aware that there's something to be said about just putting it down um, and that we are becoming more and more reliant on our screens to, to capture these moments rather than store them there. However, as we see from Shelley, um, our memories and the past are not as securely locked up within our minds as, as, we, as we would like. Um, so it's just an interesting dichotomy here. You know, the fact that Michael uses the, the remnants of this Solaroid camera creature um, assisting in the establishment of Apple products. Um, it's just interesting that there's the implication that although his intentions might have been pure, um, the fact that the foundation here uh, for technology, um, the fact that it's comprised of something both alien and insidious, um, the benevolence of his actions are, are clouded um, by the reality that it honestly came from a, a monster, the likes of which we, we can't understand. So um, just like the, the, the polar or the Solaroid, um, you know, our phones still take something from us, you know. You know, there's something being taken here. You know, even though we're able to capture something, something is being taken from us. So if the monster within the, the Solaroid camera was a parasite of sorts, um, the fact that we post all of our memories to our stories, um, to our walls, um, it means that this creature has a steady supply of fresh memories to feed off of from here on out. And it's not relegated to one device anymore. It is relegated to every device. So the creature that we first see um, in Snapshots um, has evolved and it has branched out um, into the system itself. So I, I, I think that this is um, a really, really interesting commentary that Joe Hill is making here. One that, you know, I've just been expanding upon it and going back and forth for the last 10 minutes or so, and I could do so for the next 40 minutes. You know, where does, is the line drawn here? Where, what exactly is he trying to say? Um, did he take something that was insidious and use it for good, or is the insidiousness still there? That's, that's the great question. And then, you know, like I said earlier, um, you could remove the Phoenician entirely, um, and this would still be an incredible story about 
um, the relationships that we have um, and about the guilt that we feel when we take for granted the ones who love us the most. Um, There's a sadness here. And I I think for the most part, a lot of us... um, you know, do take for granted the ones that, that, you know, love us the most. Um, and Michael learned from this and created a way, uh, for, for, um, no one to take for granted, um, anyone else ever again by capturing everyone else's lives. It's, it's really, really interesting. Random note, really random note. Um, I, and I needed to talk about this, uh, at one point during this novel, uh, Michael makes himself strawberry quick. Now, guys, this is a detail that only, only children of the 80s and early 90s is going to understand. As soon as he said this, strawberry quick, not chocolate quick, strawberry quick. It flooded me with so many memories. Now, once upon a time, um, in the 80s and in the 90s, you used to get quick um, from these tin cans that you would get at the grocery store. And I feel like such an old man talking about the old days, but this one just poof, gave me so, so many memories. I just felt like I was back in my, my parents' kitchen again. So it would come in these these tin cans. You would need to take a spoon and you need, you need to stick it or a knife, stick it under the, the lid of the can and pry the can off. And at that point, you would take your milk, pour it into a cup, take the spoon, stick it into the, the, the tin can and start to just dump spoonfuls of the quick into the milk and stir it up. Now, guys, I had no self-control. And I would fill that cup of milk with so much strawberry quick that when I concluded there was this layer of silt and sludge at the bottom about a quarter way going up the the cup. Um, Disgusting. Unnecessary. So potent, you know, and to the point where (laughs) my strawberry quicks were kind of chalky because there was so much... um, so much quick mix in there, but I loved every slurp of strawberry quick that I ever had in my life. And it just little details like that are just such a great throwback um, for those of us who experienced that. So I imagine that, you know, now I'm at the, the point in my life where Joe Hill was writing about a shared youth that we had much in the way that when I was growing up, um, Stephen King was writing about you know, my parents' generation and the shared uh, youth that they had. And that was one of the reasons that propelled him into superstar and because he was able to capture those finer details and it spoke to people's nostalgia. Um, so it's just interesting that the, the cycle continues. So we got some Easter eggs here, guys. So um, Bannerman, one of the main characters' neighbors' names is Bannerman, which could be a shout-out to the formal Castle Rock Sheriff um, and Cujo Chutoy, George Bannerman. Um, then we have Stand By Me, which is an Easter egg. Um, at one point, Shelley is listening to the soundtrack of Stand By Me. And then we have Stephen Kingisms. Um, you know, the, the most blatant one is Evil Polaroid Camera. Uh, this is not the first time that a member of the King family has written about uh, evil Polaroid cameras. The most notable uh, example of this is the Sun Dog in the collection of novellas. 
four past midnight. And then we have foreboding sparrows. I mentioned this earlier. Um, in the dark half, we have the, the, the sparrows flocking everywhere. Here we have the sparrows uh, dropping dead um, on the ground everywhere. So um, sparrows being used for, for great effect here in Snapshot as well as the dark half. And also um, the, the, the camera, the fact that it has a different name, um, it's not hard to believe that it was used by the low man at some point. Um, I don't believe that the Phoenician was a low man. He doesn't operate with the, the, the characteristics of a canned toy. Um, I do believe that he was uh, maybe not a normal man because he was evil in his own right. It was hinted that he was a pusher of sorts. That should be a Stephen Kingism. He pushed someone down the stairs. Um, so he, uh, you know, it's not hard to believe that he was, you know, some you know, low-rate magician that, that conjured this thing from um, another world or found a doorway um, and managed to, you know, be able to, to, to get this camera from another realm, uh, another world in the, in the multiverse out there. Um, but the, 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 the functionality um, and the characteristics of this Solaroid camera really made me think about the, the low men and the... Um, and the cars they drove, um, which basically is uh, the, the 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 Buick from from a Buick Eight. So all in all, this is a it was a fantastic way to start um, strange weather. It was just a great way to uh, to to kick off my my Christmas when I sat down and started reading it. I it just it it, it sucks you in. It makes you think. Um, it like it is like the best of Stephen King. It is grounded in the everyday, but it uh, but it, it it takes some supernatural flourishes here and there, and they'll have you talking for a long time afterwards. And then we get loaded. Um, and here it is from Wikipedia: A mall security guard stops a mass shooting, but begins to crack under media pressure in the days following as a wildfire bears down on his town. Okay, here is my review. I didn't know much about this story aside from what I had read on the jacket, but knowing that it had to do with guns immediately put me on edge as soon as we were introduced to our characters, who just happened to be black. Joe Hill, a um, white, respected male author, son of the most famous storyteller of the last hundred years, does a remarkable job at placing us in the shoes of Colson and Aisha. They're not our stereotypical black youths of poverty, the way every single piece of fiction seems to tell you, um, and what certain politicians will believe. Instead, Joe Hill makes the choice to have Coulson be an aspiring stage actor, a passion you don't see equated with black men in fiction. It really helps uh, flesh out Coulson as a character, although he's not in the story long. Uh, this decision makes his death even that much more tragic. And as soon as Coulson plays his prank with the car, an action rooted in good Samaritism, things get real tense real quickly. As real life plays out upon the page, Aisha's reactions demonstrate someone who at age nine fully understands the life and death situation um, he's placed himself in. And I want to stop right here. Um, I need to acknowledge something. Okay. This entire story... Um, we're going to be talking about guns, though it is fiction. We're going to be talking about life in America in 2018. And I want to say a couple things before I get any further. 
Um, anyone that has listened to my podcast knows this. I am a liberal. Um, my views are liberal. Um, and I do believe that we have um, an issue with guns. Okay. With that said, some of my friends own guns. I do not believe they are inhumane people. I don't believe that they are monstrous. I don't believe they are unintelligent. I don't believe that they are selfish. I don't believe that they don't care about other people um, or unsympathetic to the plight of others. I don't believe that because they believe in a right to own weaponry means that they are inherently awful human beings. I want to acknowledge that first and foremost. My beliefs on guns do not reflect everybody's belief on guns. They don't reflect the beliefs of people that I do whose decisions um, and values I, I happen to respect. I want to get that right out there. I think that there's a knee-jerk reaction when um, someone says that they don't like guns or they believe that there should be gun control. It means that... <clears throat> It means that anyone that does believe in guns is an awful person. I don't believe that. I believe that a large majority of people um, can't have a conversation about guns. I am one of those people. I can't really have a conversation. Even with the people that, that I know that own guns, um, I, I don't know how to bring up a conversation around um, them be, just because, quite frankly, I don't want to get into it. Um, and maybe I should get into it. I don't know. Be because I respect them so much. Um, I do. They're good people. Um, but we live in a country that has the, the highest um, fatalities by shooting by guns in the world. It is a fact. Um, we're the only country that isn't enacting gun laws um, as much as we could. We're not having a national discourse and to be perfectly honest, um, I, I just don't know. After the, after Sandy Hook, I, I just I don't know if we are ever going to get a, a, a country in which we don't have to worry about being shot. You know, when I go to the movie theaters, I I, I just every time someone comes around the corner in the dark, um, there's always that wonder of what's going to happen. You know. Um, and that's the world that we live in, you know? So I, I just, I, I, I just wanted to, to get everyone out there. Just, I just want, I just want to be honest with my thoughts and where I'm coming from. And, um, this is a story that's not going to be for everyone. This is a story that, um, whose content is right there in the title hilariously like the, this is the one of the most clever things that joe hill has ever done this story is loaded it is not just talking about the fact that it's about guns um just this is a hot topic story that is loaded with race with gun control with literal attacks on the media this is one loaded story um, and i give him a lot of credit for a tackling it and b deciding to go with this particular title so but i just wanted you guys to know where i'm coming from from this and i know that there are listeners out there who don't share the same political beliefs that i do 
And that's fine, as long as we're able to respect each other as we discuss these things. Maybe this short story will help you change your mind about the frequency with which we can get guns, um, what gun owning guns means in the 21st century. I mean, when the Second Amendment was written, it wasn't talking about the types of weaponry that we have nowadays. So I, 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 I do think that, I personally think that we need to have a serious conversation about gun control in this country. Um, and so for those of you listening right now saying, why does this have to be political? Well, the story is political. The story is very, very political. Um, that's why. And I needed to just have that caveat up front before I got any further. So 19 years later, after the death of Coulson, we meet our next cast of characters, Becky and Raj. And the contrast between Coulson and Aisha could not be any more stark. It's highly uncomfortable how jarring the transition is between the death of the young man, Coulson, um, and the sexual pleasure these two get from their flippant adrenaline rush from the shooting range. The infatuation and fetization of guns here is abhorrent. Um, you know, Joe Hill is taking the time to present another perspective here, but it is not coming without the author's condemnation on this type of lifestyle or this type of um, person that believes in guns. This is not everybody. This is not saying that everyone that owns a gun or uh, believes in gun rights acts the way that Raj and Becky do. But there are people out there that do. Um, and this is what Joe Hill is is criticizing here. Um, I mean, there's just simply put, I mean, there is a gross negligence in this scene with these characters. Um, or maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me ascribing, you know, my own biases upon these characters. I don't know. But I, I don't I don't think that it is. I mean, is is this is this what it's like for gun enthusiasts? Um, you know, I mean, think about the, the, the non-pleasurable ways that, that guns play into the lifestyle of, of Coulson and Aisha and what guns mean to them versus the, the, the non-serious and very pleasurable ways um, that it, it, it plays into the, the, the life of Becky and Raj, you know? Um, you know, there's a hypocrisy with these characters. You know, I mean, she, she meets him when she's buying a Christian promise necklace and then winds up, you know, just being everything but Christian, really, you know. So, you know, I, I don't know. <coughs> I struggle <coughs> with this because I, you know, I've wanted to go to a shooting range before. Um, for fun. It's something that I always wanted to do. Um, but I, how do I wrestle with that now that we live in the world that we do? You know, it's just, these are questions that I constantly ask myself. So where, where should the line be drawn when we, we discuss characters like Becky and Raj versus Aisha and Cole, you know, um, Guns mean completely different things for each of these characters. And by the time Hill gets to his next character, a racist vet named Randall, um, you know, like I said, this is when the, the, this, the, the title becomes abundantly clear. I mean, it's not just a story about guns. You know, this is a short story packed with so many hot topics, you feel like it's going to explode just holding it. You know, um, 
it might literally refer to a weapon being loaded, but on another level, a story is loaded with just so many hot topics. You know, this is probably the most important thing that he's ever written. It's not necessarily his best, um, and at times it borderlines on, like, Lifetime movie, um, because he, he, he... Sometimes he is so poignant in his writing. Other times he he turns characters into caricatures. Other times, you know, he's very much 100%. Other times he is overly stylized in how he's presenting these characters. Um, I still think that Loaded is an important work that needs to be read. I think that it should be adapted um, into a movie um, very, very quickly. Um, I think that it its message is really, really important. Um, I don't think that we have had a, um, a a piece of fiction really address guns and what guns mean in the 21st century the way that he does it here. Um, but his writing in this story very much is like that fire that's burning um, throughout the, the, the town. Um, it just it will get caught by the wind it will flare up it will keep you know and en- en- encroaching um upon us um and it's just always there uh hot and angry um with just sparks flying everywhere now going back to randall if you thought that becky and roger were loathsome i mean just wait for randall um you know he's a guy he justifies his own actions. He never takes blame for any of his actions. He is racist without knowing it, and that's a problem with racists. You know, they just never know that they're racists. Um, you know, they always think that. I mean, th- this is why this is why Loaded is such an important work because it talks about so much. But um, that's the thing. You know, that's why I think that Get Out was so important this year um, because it it showed racism from a different perspective and how you just don't need to put a sheet on your head to, to be a, a racist racism, you know, racism comes in, in, in so many different ways. Um, you know, and the, the, the most deep seated racists, they don't know it. I don't think that they know it. You know, Randall doesn't think, you know, Randall doesn't, would never categorize himself as a racist. Um, even though he profiles, um, you know, people, he is, uh, very xenophobic, he is, uh, I don't know if he's homophobic. I don't know if that's ever shown in there, but he's definitely misogynistic. Um, you know, he is the image of the Trump voter that a lot of people have. Um, and we know that there is many demographics within the Trump voters, but there is a segment of this country um, that does mirror um, what uh, the the beliefs that that Randall has, and this is the the segment of the population that's fully on display in in this story. You know, it starts to get really uncomfortable when Randall meets up with an old friend um, who's about to sell him some guns illegally, and they joke about who to start with when the murder spree starts, um, which definitely happens in this story. And the characters start to coalesce around the story as it turns out that Becky, Raj, and Randall all work at the same mall. I mean, there's so many variables at play here, so many loaded weapons just waiting to go off. You're never quite sure what's going to happen. Is Becky going to snap because Roger dumped her? Um, Randall, is he going to snap from the diversification of an America that, you know, he, he doesn't understand anymore? Um, and because of the restraining order from his wife, 
you know, all of the combustible molecules percolating in this very American mall explode in a horrific tragedy. Hill opts to avoid that, even though it is a mass shooting. You know, he doesn't go for like what we saw from Las Vegas recently, um, but instead zeroes in on prejudice and trigger happy machismo. The second he is introduced to a Middle Eastern woman in the jewelry store, we know that, you know, she would have to figure in how this was going to play out. And the results are horrific. They're inhumane. And it's violence and racial profiling. It's brilliant how Hill placed us so firmly in Randall's perspective that we hear the witness say there's a Muslim female shooter instead of a Muslim comma female shooter. It's like that play on words, let's eat grandma versus let's eat comma grandma. The whole sequence is hard to read because he was so quick to believe in the fantasy of taking out an Al-Qaeda agent along with a converted American. The death of the infant is sickening. But knowing that we still can't have a civil conversation in the wake of Sandy Hook is a sickening truth to this country. So I imagine as I read this that Randall would be able to justify his actions, dead child or no dead child, very much speaks to America in 2018. Um, There's a podcast I listen to, the Fatherly Podcast. It's anyone that's a father, I strongly recommend it. It's great. It's a really, really good podcast. Um... I do want to warn you, though, there is one episode out there, and I listened to this episode. um, Actually, I listened to it um, the night uh, my wife and daughter and I uh, moved out of our house um, into a hotel for three nights before we moved into the the new house. And I had to go out to the store and and just get some stuff. Um, And I put on this podcast, um, and my wife and daughter were at the hotel room. I was going to go grocery shopping just to get just some stuff that we needed. And I listened to this podcast episode, which was just one of the fathers of Sandy Hook who had lost their child. Um, and I needed to compose myself before I head into the, the grocery store because I was just like really badly affected you know um it's a great podcast it's a very potent and powerful episode but i was just sobbing uncontrollably in my car listening to this story um and i think more people should hear that story um and stories like it uh you know when talking about just gun control um because yeah yeah according to our laws everyone has a right to own a gun but can we just start talking about what that means Um, So that this story that this poor father had to tell doesn't have to get told again by a different parent. Anyway, this story has it all. Profiling the fear of terrorism, the fetishization of guns. Um, Sadly enough, and I hate having to say this, um, but dead children as a result of gun violence and um, cover-ups. You know, and as the immediacy of the shooting closes out, we get our return of Aisha, now grown up, knowing that she's witnessed the damaging effects of gun violence. You just can't help but wonder what her role in all of this is going to be. And we don't have to wait long as her investigation into the shooting automatically uncovers an alternative and truthful version of events. That night during the press conference, Joe Hill gets right to it. 
He doesn't beat around the bush. He stakes his flag in the sand and has the police chief refer to Kellaway as a good guy with a gun, conjuring the pro-gun solution to mass shootings. He doubles down on this by having Jim pray worship to Kellaway, knowing that as he begins his descent into death, his actions have saved lives, which is a travesty due to the fact that his actions in giving a gun to an unstable, trigger-happy, bitter racist led to the deaths of three innocent lives, including a baby, as well as the death of not just an innocent shooter who wouldn't have shot anyone else since her target had been eliminated. Jim's devotion of Kellaway isn't just about one character supporting another character. In this moment, Jim becomes the voice of anyone who believes in the myth of the good guy with the gun and Hill condemns both the believer and the supposed good guy with the gun due to their actions which caused the death of innocent lives. Meanwhile, Aisha continues to pull at the threads of Kellaway's tale, hearing the truth of one of the victim's character traits of cowardice, how he'd never purposefully place himself in danger. Hill slowly presents suspicion um, to Kellaway's story, which further propels Aisha to find the truth. She gets an email from Roger's wife, who implicates Roger in an affair with the shooter, casting more doubt. Chief Rickles throw heaps and heaps of adoration at Kellaway's feet, along with piles of racist and sexist comments regarding Aisha. However, despite his demeaning comments, it's clear he fears her journalistic abilities and of his warning to Kellaway is, is sincere. Kellaway, meanwhile, isn't making things easy for himself as he presents a different story how he got his gun he used to kill the shooter. Aisha continues to circle around her prey before going in for the kill in a very fun and dynamic scene in which she's exercising by running the stairs of her job, holding two conversations simultaneously, one at the bottom of the stairs with an informant and one at the top of the stairs with her boss. It's a fun, clever, active, and visually dynamic way to present information to both the reader and Aisha. Our main characters finally cross paths outside of the big TV taping meant to celebrate Kellaway's heroism, and Aisha is um, able to rattle, rattle him enough to all but confirm her suspicions. Though this isn't a horror story, Joe Hill is very much his father's son, which means that when he wants to bring the scares, he can um, in this case, when Kellaway finds Jim's body after a suicide, with the fires creeping closer, shrouding the world in darkness, he senses him nearby, only to discover the man couldn't be nearby because the man is dead. What follows is dangerous territory. An increasingly unhinged murderer now has access to weaponry. He grows even more unhinged when he sees that Aisha published another story about him, this time revealing the restraining order and um, how his guns had been taken away. Hey guys, remember back in the day um, when I'd read what I believe the most important excerpt of every story was, the one that spoke um, most clearly to the theme of the book? I don't know when I stopped doing that, but that was um, a highlight of the Stephen King cast. Well, anyway, um, sorry that I haven't done it um, for a while, but but here we go. Um, here we go with the, 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 the most important excerpt from... Loaded. It was her, of course. It was the Black Lantern Glass, who had turned up yesterday evening to ambush him when he walked out of the local TV studio. She couldn't leave him alone. She didn't care if he ever saw his kid again. For her, he was just a character in a nasty story that he could use to sell some papers. He had dared not admit to himself until now that a part of him had begun to believe he could leverage his sudden, unexpected celebrity into getting it all back. Holly and George, sure, but something else, too. His rights were the word that came to him, but that was and wasn't quite it. 
It wasn't his right to have a gun, or not just his right to gun. It was only part of it. It seemed to him that there was something obscene about an America where a grinning Latina could tell him to stay away from his own son, and never mind he worked 50 hours a week, never mind he had sacrificed as a soldier representing his nation in a hostile foreign land. The thought of the tiny black woman grinning at him while she poked her cell phone in his face, asking him her loaded questions, made him feel feverish. It seemed grotesque that he lived in a society where someone like that could make a living out of humiliating him. She didn't care that George would hear on the TV that his father was a sick man who pointed guns at his own family. She didn't care what kids said to George at school if he got teased and harassed. Lantern Glass had decided he was a criminal from the moment she had laid eyes on him. He was white and male. Obviously, he was a criminal. Um, that conversation, that viewpoint, very much is in the collective uh, conversation of America in 2018. Um, I believe that we're going to be hearing more about this conversation um, as we uh, head into election season um, and and when the presidential uh, election season starts gearing up in the next couple of years. Anyway, the dog is completely off his leash at this point. Um, he kills Jim's wife. Um, and um, after the, 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 the bullet is found in the toilet at the mall, he kills the chief as well. Um, with a gathering at the mall, Kellaway having lost any sensibility of um, logic or sanity. And with Aisha at the mall with her daughter, I started to grow very, very concerned about the conclusion of the story, which um, he swerves. Um, and it isn't at the, uh, the mall that it concludes, but um, at the newspaper offices, which um, I, I, I do believe is also very important because the, the country's newspapers are under attack as well. So all of this is just spiraling out of control as the murder count continues. Kellaway's last tether to humanity is taken from this world by his own hands when he accidentally shoots his son, when he was purposely trying to shoot his sister-in-law. Um, more disturbing than the murder of the child is the rationale he concocts to justify his actions. He's always blaming others, never himself. And then the ending comes. The ending to a story where um, our first character was Aisha as a child. And then throughout the story, we get to fall in love with Aisha's child herself. Um, so here we go. I'm going to read uh, the conclusion, 231 to 232. So just bear with me. The child's wiry arms were around her mother's waist. And Lantern Glass thought, don't let him have seen us. Please, God, don't let him have seen us. Please, God, let this child live. Tim Chen disappeared from Lantern Glass's view, moving toward the door of his office. He had picked up a marbled bookend, a block of pink and white stone, the only thing he could find to fight with. Lan Lantern Glass heard him shout an inart inarticulate cry of horror and rage, and the Bushmaster went off again. Chunk, 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 chunk. Not eight feet away, just the other side of her desk. Tim Chen fell so hard, the floor shook. Her ears rang strangely. She had never held her daughter so tightly, could not have squeezed her any harder without breaking something. Lantern Glass took the tiniest sip of air, was afraid that if she inhaled too deeply, Kellaway would hear. 
But then maybe he would not be able to hear anything after firing so many shots. Maybe after all that gunfire, he would be deaf to the small sounds of a shaking girl and a quietly gasping mother. The wind roared, rising and rising in volume. Lantern glass stared out through the windows into the smoke, and with a kind of horrified wonder saw a twisting rope of flame 300 feet tall out in the murk, an incendiary top whirling down the middle of the highway. A slender tornado of fire, reaching up into the suffocating white sky and disappearing. It turned, if it turned toward the building, perhaps it would strike and tear apart the bricks and carry her daughter Dorothy away to some golden, burning, terrible, yet wonderful Oz. Maybe it would carry them both away. At the sight of it, Aisha lantern, glanced, lantern glasses chest filled with an awe that was like breath, swelling in her lungs, swelling her heart. The beauty of the world and the horror of the world were twined together like wind and flame. The smoke rose, filthy and dark, and pressed against the glass and then subsided, and suddenly that blazing, twisting stairwell into the clouds was gone. One combat boot appeared, coming down in front of their hiding place in the footwell beneath the desk. Dorothy's eyes were squeezed shut. She didn't see. Lantern glasses, lantern glass stared out over her daughter's head, holding her breath. The other boot appeared. He was standing right in front of the desk. Slowly, slowly, Kellaway bent down to looking at them, holding the butt of the Bushmaster under his right armpit. He stared upon Lantern Glass and her little girl with something very like serenity in his pale blue, almost white eyes. Just think, if you had a gun, he said to her, this story might have a different ending. I, I got to tell you, um, as I was reading Loaded, I was so into this book. I stayed up late one night because I needed to finish it. Um, and partially because I think that I, I, I felt that I really wanted Kellaway. Um, I wanted justice. Um, I, I wanted him to be taken down. So I should have known better. And by the time he killed his son, I started to get a really bad feeling. And then once the fire was coming close to the newspaper office, the dread that I was feeling, it was making me ill. So that ending, it floored me in a way that I haven't really been floored by a piece of fiction in a long time. Spoiler alert for Game of Thrones, um, The Mountain and the Viper. Uh, spoiler alert for that. Uh, Game of Thrones, not uh, not the book, but the, the show. Um, I was so into that plot, and I couldn't wait for that showdown, that the... Uh, when it happened, which was just an incredible moment of television, I couldn't believe that for once, the person that we rooted for, our hero, 
was actually winning. Something good was happening. And it looked like um, the Viper had won. Uh, the Red Viper had won. And it looked like he had beaten the mountain. And I had <laughs> the endorphins were just flooding through my body. I was so happy. I was just so happy. Um, and of course, it, it did not end well. Um, when uh, Clegane knocks him down and um, oh, the teeth, when the teeth go flying and everything that, that happened afterwards, because I was, I had let myself believe that I was going to have a happy ending and the endorphins were flooding, my body had a, like a physiological reaction to the sudden change in emotions and I felt physically ill, not because of the um, level of violence, but because of the sudden change um, of just like chemicals rushing through my body. And that's what happened here. I had led myself to believe that I was going to get some measure of justice, some, I don't know why I thought I was going to get a happy ending. I did not expect this. I did not expect this level of bleakness. Um, and yet I should have because of the content that, that Joe Hill was writing about. And that's what I went to bed thinking about. I wanted to cry. It was really, really hard. It was really heavy. Um, and it really was the only ending, now that I think about it, that Joe Hill could have um, given to this story. So I, I, I'm not sure what I can say about it other than what I've already said. I think that it's an important story that many people need to read. I believe that it's ripe for adaptation of all of the Joe Hill short stories and novels that he's written. I think that this is the one that probably should shoot to the top. No pun intended, actually. Uh, that should shoot to the top um, in terms of what should get made next, uh, because this is very much a product of our times, uh, and I think that it reflects a lot of the conversations that we're having in America. I think that it reflects a lot of aspects of America, um, and I, I think that it would be it would start a lot of conversations, um, which is something that we need to have um, because art—it's what art does. Art can make change, um, and this is not necessarily um, a majorly reflective or, or, or contemplative piece. Um, it is a very, like the title says, it's a very loaded, very one-sided um, examination on many aspects of America, whether it be gun control, race in America, um, how we feel about, um, uh, you know, who has a right to America, um, what the role of journalism is in America today. There's a lot to it right now. And uh, I, I think that this is the story from Joe Hill that should be told to a mass audience. So uh, we do have some Easter eggs. Um, one is the, uh, the number 19. Uh, a woman is stabbed 19 times. And then there is a 19-year gap between the, the first vignette um, and the second. So I thought that that was... Uh, Pretty clever on Joe Hill's part. So that's all that I'm going to say about Loaded for now. 
of the short stories, or I keep saying short stories, but of the short novels that uh, Joe Hill wrote in Strange Weather, this is the one that I'm going to keep coming back to again and again and again. This is the the one It's going to take a long time to get out of my head. Um, and the next time there is a mass shooting, um, it's, it's going to immediately come to mind. So... Uh, so I strongly recommend it to everybody out there. Um, up next, we have Aloft. Um, and then uh, Wikipedia uh, says that it is a man's first attempt at skydiving goes awry when he lands on a solid cloud and can find no way off of it. So I'm going to be very, very honest here. Because Loaded completely devastated me, the, I did not really take many notes for Aloft. Um, and and be, be perfectly honest, I, it's not that I want to say that it's thin because it's not thin. It's just the strength of a loft is in its imagination and it's in his ability to um, craft imagery. Um, and I, I could just recite word for word what he wrote to just showcase the, 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 the talents on display of him creating this incredible, incredible imaginary world. Um, you know, how many times have we spent looking up at the clouds? Um, and how many times as a child have we dreamed about being able to sit on a cloud? Well, Joe Hill clearly has had these thoughts because he turned that what if into a story. And, um, it's an incredible, and it's, a, it's an incredible read. And he, he just, like his father and like his previous stories, he, he takes this seed and he just lets it grow. And he just waters it and he just lets that seed grow into a flower, letting it grow wherever and however it wants to. Um, and it, it's, like I said, the, the, the imagery on display here of of the, the, the cloud and, and how it looks like a UFO and the, the dome and the different formations of furniture and people that the, the, the cloud takes. And, ah, it's, it's so rich. It's a, it's a very, very rich story. I mean, the character work here is, is very quick. It comes at you really, really quick, and it's just as effective. Um, the main character, I mean, I feel like we get to know Aubrey right away. Um, and the, the, the scene is set right from the get-go. Um, it, it doesn't take long after the character work for us to, um, for, for Joe Hill to introduce the supernatural element, that strange UFO flying saucer-shaped cloud moving against the wind. Um, so, I mean, he places us in the plane with Aubrey, and then he places us, you know, um, on the cloud with Aubrey. And... You know, even before then, the, the, the tension is there. There's the, 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 the inner conflict that Aubrey has in regards to his relationship with Harriet. We are screaming at Aubrey because we can read this a mile away. It's never going to happen, Aubrey. I don't want to say man up. I hate that term. But just get over it. Move on. Be your own person. Don't do this to yourself. I mean, we've recognized this person. We've seen it played out a million times before. Um, you know, so we're, we're, we're immediately hooked into something that's very recognizable. Um, and then Joe Hill amps up the tension by having the plane go dead. Something's going on. Something supernatural is happening here, and it's forcing our main character to have to flee. Um, and then what happens next? It's it's unexpected, and it's fun. You know, He and his guide immediately crash into the cloud, and before either of them can make any sense of it, his guide is whipped away. 
into the sky, leaving Aubrey alone on his own personal island. Um, you know, throughout it, you know, he teases, uh, you know, some hope in the form of, you know, the possibility of the GoPro being found, of him being able to use his cell phone, of him being able to flag down a passing plane. But, you know, these, these, these hopes are dashed. Um, and then, you know, reality sets in that Aubrey is stuck on this cloud. And then, from there, it's just a series of back-and-forth scenes alternating between Aubrey's discoveries on the cloud, each one more fantastical than the next, uh, with the flashbacks to his obsession with Harriet from the moment they meet uh, through the, the, the moment uh, he takes advantage of her um, to the moment of, of June's death. And then on the cloud, um, he ultimately has that impactful um, realization that just hammers home why Joe Hill is as good as he is because any old author could write, you know, an imaginary story about uh, someone on the cloud, but then there's Joe Hill who ties it into the deeper themes. When Aubrey awoke almost 11 hours later, he knew something he should have understood months earlier. June had not told him he needed to move on from Harriet because she cared about him. June had told him to move on because she cared about Harriet, and Harriet was too sweet or too lacking in assertiveness, take your pick, to tell Aubrey to get the fuck out of her life. That was what Harriet had been getting at on the day of the reception. What else did you and June discuss? Harriet and June had maybe only moments from breaking up their goof, little goof of a folk act when he hijacked things that night in the slidey toves. He had made it all the more serious than it had to be and than they had ever wanted it to be. The girls had made room for him in their lives, but only after he'd elbowed his way in and superimposed his own desires over their harmless fun. There was, in fact... No one on the ground aside from his mother who would be unable to recover from his inexplicable disappearance. There was no life waiting for him down there because he had never bothered to build one. He had left as little trace on the world below as the shadow of a cloud passing over a field, a notion that infuriated him and made him want to get back down there all the more. So just the connection um, between his life as the cloud, um, I, I, I think that that's important because, um, you know, he is an island. Um, he is walking through other people's lives as a cloud, in, in, you know, insubstantial. Um, and he is he's doing the he, he, he is the cloud. He is this cloud creature. Um, he is lonely on the cloud, as on the cloud as he is in real life, and it just takes actually being on the cloud for him to realize that. But in, until he gets to that point, his journey on the cloud is both beautiful, um, you know, uncanny, and uh, so lonely. And it was so captivating. I would say that of the three short stories... There I go again. Three short novels that, that you read in succession. Um, for me, maybe it's because the content was just so lighter um, in many ways than um, Loaded. I felt that this was the one I just I just wanted to devour more. I, I just wanted to see what was going to happen next um, because it was just so... Um, imaginative you know loaded is so reflective of the world that we live in it's the one that that feels the most real um 
Uh, Snapshot is, you know, has that nostalgic lens. There is a, um, not a glorification of the past, but, you know, there's definitely a, a, a looking at life through, you know, rose-colored glasses. There, there's a hope there. Um, but this is just so rich with imagery and just so imaginative that I just wanted to see what crazy cloud creation Joe Hill was going to whip up next from the coat rack to the bed to the cloud um, Harriet to the palace that's created to him flying around to just the way the stars come out at night and the way he looks over the the fields from the edge of the cloud and riding around on the cloud unicorn and the mount and the moat that isn't water but it's just actual sky um walking up the dome to seeing the 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 crazy cloud machine and the face um the the monster alien face it's just crazy crazy concepts and it's all rooted in one young man's life who hasn't even started living yet and that's the potency of it that's the power there and and that's why um the story works as well as it does um so that's really all I have to say about uh, Aloft. I thought that it was a, a very strong uh, short novel. I think that it um, has a very, you know, I mean, the fact that it, it concludes with a happy ending, you know, really was what I needed after, after Loaded, which leads us to um, our last short novel in, um, in Strange Weather. And that short novel is entitled Rain. Uh, So, again, with the Wikipedia summary, it's going to be very, very short, um, ridiculously short. And Wikipedia says, Clouds above Boulder, Colorado begin to rain down splinters of crystal that kill anyone unlucky enough to be caught outside. So, uh, just a couple notes about Rain. As I was reading it... um, it just very much felt at first, in all the right ways, like The Regulators. And longtime listeners will know that that is a novel by technically Richard Bachman. But at this point, we all know that Richard Bachman is Stephen King. So it was a novel by uh, Richard Bachman, and I think tends to get looked over in favor of Desperation, which is a companion piece. Um, there are two stories. Uh, well, basically the same story or the same concept told from two different perspectives of the same author, which is just another example of how prolific and how imaginative Stephen King is through both the Stephen King persona and the Richard Bachman persona. But anyway, Regulators doesn't get the amount of love that I think that it should. Uh, and anyone that is interested in my thoughts on the Regulators, head on over to, to that particular review. And if you haven't read the Regulators or you have um, read the Regulators after desperation and you tend to prefer desperation more revisit the regulators and think about how potent the imagery is and how amazing it would look in a movie and just how crazy it would look so someone please give brian fuller the reins to uh the regulators, because I think that that would be great. Anyway, um, it, it just felt very much like the regulators, not not because there was crazy imagery, but the buildup of the storm in a 
small little community. Um, just very much felt like everyone's going about their day right before the the, the supernatural event hits. And um, we, we got to know each of the characters much like we did in The Regulators. And what's fantastic here is Joe Hill just really father, um, follows in his father's footsteps in, in many ways, but his ability to just build that tension as the supernatural makes its way is... Um, he just, it just makes it worth reading. So uh, he writes, But there wasn't any wrecks in the road, and the sky was just as brilliant and blue as ever, at least from my vantage point. The wind was gusting strong, though, across the street, over where the comet cult people lived. The breeze snatched at a stack of paper plates and scattered them across the grass and into the road. I could smell rain in that wind, or something like rain anyway. It was the fragrance of a quarry, the odor of pulverized rock. When I leaned my head out and looked at the peaks, I saw it, a great black thunderhead the size of an aircraft carrier coming up fast over the flat irons like they sometimes did. It was so black it startled me, black with bruised highlights of pink in it, a soft, dreamy pink like a color you'd see at sunset. I mean, it's just it's great description for one, but it, it also just really shows uh, his ability at just putting us in, in this case, Honeysuckle's perspective. And then, guys, the rain hits. Um, and Joe Hill needs to make this scene work in order for the entire premise to work. So, the rain hits. I took one step into the driveway and something stung my arm. It was like the shock of pain and then the aching numbness you get after the nurse sticks a syringe in you. My first thought was that I had been bitten by a horsefly. Then I looked at my bare shoulder and I saw a bright red drop of blood and something sticking out of the skin, a thorn of gold. I sucked in a sharp breath and wiggled it free and stood there staring at it. It was about two inches long and looked like a pin made out of needle-sharp amber glass. It was pretty, like jewelry, especially all bright and red with my blood. I couldn't think where it had come from. It was hard, too, hard as quartz. Turned it, I turned it this way and that, and it caught the weird pink stormlight and flashed. Mr. Waldman yelled, and I glanced around in time to see him slap at something on the back of his neck, as if the same horsefly that bit me had just gotten him. By then I could hear the rain coming, a furious rattling, building in volume. It was loud, a roar, like a thousand thumbtacks being poured into a steel bucket. A car alarm went off, the horn going blat, 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 somewhere up the hill. It seemed to me that the very ground under my feet began to shudder. It's one thing to be scared, but what came over me then was bigger than that. I had a sudden premonition of disaster, a sick flop in the stomach. I shouted Yolanda's name, but I'm not sure she heard me over the gathering rackety-tackety of the rain. She was still up on the rear bumper. She lifted up her chin, looked into the sky. Templeton called to me, and the anxiety in his voice made him sound like the very small boy he was. I turned and found he had approached as far as the entrance of the garage, drawn by the roar of the oncoming rain. I put my hand on his chest and pushed him back into the garage, which is why he lived and why I lived, too. I looked back just as the rain broke over on the street. It crackled where it hit the blacktop and pinged when it hit the cars, and some part of me thought it was hail, and some part of me knew it wasn't. The comet cult gal who was picking up paper plates out of the road arched her back and very suddenly went all wide-eyed as if someone had pinched her rear end. I could see pins hitting the road and spraying this way and by then needles of silver and gold. 
Up on his ladder, old Mrs. Waldman went ramrod stiff. He already had one hand on the nape of his neck. The other flew to the small of his back. He began to do an unconscious jig at the top of the ladder as he was stung again and again. His right foot dropped for the next rung, missed it, and he plunged, striking the ladder and flipping over on his way to the ground. Then the rain was coming down hard. The chubby woman at the grill still had her face to the sky. She was the only one who didn't run, and I watched as she was torn apart in a downpour of steely nails. Her crinkly silver gown was jerked this way and that on her body, as if invisible dogs were fighting over it. She lifted her hands, a woman surrendering to an advancing army, and I saw that her palms and forearms were stuck with hundreds of needles so that she looked like a pale pink cactus." Mrs. Rusted turned in a circle, keeping her head down, took two steps from the car, then changed her mind and went back. She fumbled blindly and found the latch. Her arms were prickled all over with needles, her shoulders, her neck. She struggled with the driver's side door, got it open, and began to crawl in. But she had made it only halfway behind the wheel when the windshield exploded in on her. She collapsed and didn't move again, her legs still hanging out into the street. The backs of her round, full thighs were a dense thicket of needles. Yolanda leapt off the rear bumper and turned toward me. She made a run for the garage. I heard her scream my name. I took two steps toward her, but Templeton had me by the wrist and wouldn't let go. I couldn't make him let go, and I couldn't go out there with him attached to me. When I looked back, my girl had been driven to her knees. And Yolanda. 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 Um, so like I said... This entire story is, it's a crazy concept and it needs to work. The threat needs to be um, something that, that we recognize and believe in. And with this, with the first of these rains hitting right in front of our main character, in front of our eyes, because we feel like we are right next to Honeysuckle in the garage, it works. It works. And everything that follows after this um it, 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 it's, it's, it's going to work. This is a story that works. It's a ludicrous concept if you really boil it down to it, but it's a not in Joe Hill's, um, not in his hands. Now, here's the deal. <clears throat> he sets this in a very, very specific time period, um, anywhere within the next seven years um, with, our, with our current president, um, and just the way that we react to things. And, I mean, you can see here... Um, on page 344, the operating theory, lacking any other credible explanation, was terrorism. The president had disappeared to a secure location, but had responded with the full force of his Twitter account. He posted, Our enemies don't know what they started. Payback is a bitch. Hashtag Denver. Hashtag Colorado. Hashtag America. Exclamation point. Uh, exclamation point. The vice president had promised to pray as hard as he could for the survivors and the dead. He pledged to stay on his knees all day and all night long. It was reassuring to know that our national leaders were using all the resources at their disposal to help the desperate. Social media and Jesus. So, in, in other novels about the end of the world, um, whether it be the fireman that we've seen from Joe Hill or um, the end of the world scenarios from Stephen King, um, whether that be Cell or The Mist or obviously The Stand, there is a universality and a timelessness to those end of the world stories, whereas this one is so specific to 2018, 2017 when it came out, um, or like I said, the, the next seven years. 
it, uh, it, it, it is less about the nails. I'm going to get into this. It is really about this time period. Um, the, the way the world reacts to it, I mean, the, the, seeing Wolf Blitzer on television and the dread that falls upon his face when he, in front of the world, comes to the understanding that when talking to the scientist, this is what rain is going to be from now on is horrifying. And the fact that we see that reaction, we come to that realization, not through Honeysuckle or one of our characters, but through one of our characters watching television, I think that that speaks so profoundly to how we absorb information uh, in this day and age. And then, um, so after the, the devastation, Honeysuckle makes the decision to venture across the freshly wounded city to reach her girlfriend's father. And this is something that I really appreciated because um, in times of tragedy, when the world is ending, many times we can grow inhuman. Um, here, Honeysuckle is sacrificing her own life in order to express ultimate humanity by simply informing a father that his daughter has died. And I, I, I just really like that is her quest. Her quest um, by, by, by journeying across the city to, to inform um, Yolanda's father It not necessarily about informing Yolanda's father from a thematic standpoint. It's Joe Hill saying that this is just decent humanity, that we that she is taking it upon herself and sacrificing, um, possibly sacrificing her own life in a quest to be decent, um, even though she just might be torn asunder by, by rain. And um, in this day and age when we are losing... Uh, what we what was just understood as as decency and it's it's now okay to be indecent and to be vulgar and to be obscene and to be vitriolic if if these are the qualities that have replaced politeness and decency um the fact that honeysuckle is going on this quest and it is a quest it feels like a fantasy quest um to live by that code of decency. She becomes a knight in that regard. She becomes a gunslinger in that regard in her own way. Um, and I just, I, I really like how Joe Hill put that first and foremost. And then, of course, there's there's surreality to it, um, which just makes this, this, this fresh, tragic landscape um, all the more vivid. So he writes... I was tramping across the campus of the University of Colorado Boulder when I saw a guy in a tree 40 feet off the ground, a man in a dark windbreaker and a red tie, tilted almost upside down with a branch going through his stomach. I walked right under him. He was reaching out with both arms, and his eyes were wide open like he was about to ask for help getting down. I couldn't figure out for the life of me how he'd gotten up there. We'll later learn that there was a helicopter crash, but it's moments like that of us being in Yolanda's shoes, just looking at what was once a recognizable world, seeing um, just the absurd and the surreal and the unrecognizable. It, it, it just uh, it goes a long way in just really illustrating how flipped and upside down the, the world has, has come. And when she gets to a more populated area, Hill gets to show off his talents by um, creating an end-of-the-world scenario that feels nuanced, fresh, and like I had said, unmistakably 2018. 
In all of the end of the world stories I've ever read, I've never read one like this because this one has a very specific take for, for examples like um, 370 when he writes, I waited my turn and when I got up to the table, a tall gawky gal wearing a pair of giant glasses and a red staples shirt said, are you looking for someone bringing someone in? In front of her, she had a set of rotary files and a bag full of manila tags. Neither right yet. How's it all work? Staples will tag your loved one and file their location on field for future reference. If you have a Staples reward account, we'll even email you the burial information. It's all free to show our commitment to rebuilding the greater Boulder area through the combined forces of local volunteers and Staples' great products and services. She recited her lines in a dazed drone. Um, how true is that? How true is that? It would not take long at all for a, a, a company, whether it be Staples or, or whatever, whatever company, to... Um, try to monetize and profit in some way, whether through through money or through just branding something like this. This struck me so hard, and I've never seen in fiction in an end-of-the-world tragedy scenario like this, um, this particular beat. So it's just, it's so fresh to know that even in a well-worn genre, like the one he's dabbling in right now, um, He's still able to add something fresh, something new. And then as Honeysuckle continues her quest, um, th- there's, a, there's an illustration in here of, of the cat um, with the, 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 the needles through it. And we, we meet this cat um, and its owner, Mark Despot. Um, and unfortunately, she has to put the cat out of her misery. And then we think that Mark Despot is going to be some sort of antagonist chasing her down the road. But unfortunately, um, she encounters this crazy cult that lived uh, across the street from her. And um, Mark Despot, who we thought for a second would be some sort of villain of the story, some wild card that was simple and would come after her actually winds up saving the day. And I, I just, I, what he's going to do again and again in this story is speak about the judgments that we make. Um, even Yolanda makes these judgments. And I think that there's something to be said about that in 2018, where the things that we, we think about people might not necessarily be true when everyone's pointing fingers and, and blaming. And um, I'll, I'll get to more of this from a, from a global perspective um, in a little bit, but I, I think that that's something that's interesting to, to take into account. Um, and he'll do it again with the murderer. He'll do it again with the queen of the apocalypse. And he, he contrasts these images with the reality of who is hiding behind these images. Um, she then encounters state troopers working with a chain gang cleaning up the road. Um, and then he presents a statement so profound um, in its simplicity um, and its truth and its pointlessness. So he writes, yes, sir, I said, what are you guys going to do if it rains? What are all of you going to do? Take cover and start sweeping again when it's over. If the roads aren't clear, what good are they? If a government can't keep the roads open, what good is a government at all? He cast an unhappy look at the sky and said, wouldn't that be a sad epitaph for the world? Democracy was canceled on account of rain. The human season will be suspended until further notice. If he knew he'd said just if he knew he'd just said some poetry, his sunburned hard ass Yule Brenner face didn't show it. But that's so true. If a government can't keep the roads open, what good is a government at all? Um, you know, I, I kind of think that with that. Um, 
the human season will be suspended until further notice. Some sort of variation of that actually would have made for a really good title. Human season is canceled um, or human season is rained out. Something like that I think would have made for a really good um, title. I like rain, but I don't think that it really is the, the, gets to the truth of what this story is. Um, and even though there's the end, it's the end of the world, um, there's humor to it. I mean, the, just the image of the, the, the prisoner who had uh, hacksawed off his landlord's head, just driving down the, the, the road in the tractor that's throwing off dead bodies as he tries to make a slow getaway is, you know, it's dark humor, but it, there, there's humor in it. I mean, and there, there's, there's fun to it. Um, what's not fun is the conclusion to her journey when she gets to her girlfriend's father's house to find him dead. And, um, you know... It, it, it's tragic, but this is where the story starts to kind of evolve a little bit from just the quest to a series of mysteries that are going to play out until the end of the story. So Yolanda becomes this immediate detective who discovers that not only is the body dead, but there's been foul play and puts two and two together that it was the, the neighbor across the street. Um, and she um, she's able to, to, to get revenge on that, that character, which there is some level of justice. It is sad. It never takes away the, the, the death and the tragedy of, of the loss of that character and the conclusion of that particular family, but um, there is still some modicum of, of justice that, that comes from it. Um, and, and it's never hopeless. I'm going to get to this in a little bit, but it's never fully hopeless because he's constantly balancing despair and hope. Um, you know, so we, we see... Um, you know, Yolanda's dad, um, you know, and, and the murder of Yolanda's dad um, with the, the National Guard um, who fully supports Honeysuckle's story. I mean, when she encounters the, um, the National Guard and she tells them everything, they aren't cynical. They aren't self-absorbed. They don't say, well, we've got too much going on to worry about this. They believe her. Their belief in morality takes over, um, despite the fact that they, you know, have other jobs to do. They want to go arrest this bigot, um, murderer. And I think that that speaks to the, the, the humanity in all of us, even when tragedy is just ripping us to shreds. Um, Mark Despot was seemingly a bad guy, but he's the one that saves the day. So what started out with something that was bleak and dangerous actually turns out to be a, a bit of hope. Um, the state troopers, Again, the state troopers, when, when they were out trying to clear the roads, that they had a job to do, um, and they had to look out for these, these prisoners. So they had a lot on their plates, but they still took the time to believe her story about the, the Comet people um, taking her phone and attacking her. And even when the Comet people who had been tied up are found and they tell a different story, the state troopers believe Honeysuckle. So I just really like the fact that in this story, he never tips into desperation for the sake of desperation. His his statement that he's making about humanity in the face of crisis is a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, and it's one that's definitely more hopeful. And then Honeysuckle uh, finally returns home, and Hill delivers a true whammy of a twist ending that I did not expect coming at all. So after a brief tease that the Russian neighbor across the street might have been responsible for the crystallized rain, it turns out that it was the mother of Templeton, the sickly boy that Honeysuckle babysat. And all of it, the entire story falls into place. The dead father's work as a chemist, the boy dreaming of flying at night, because they were flying as they were seeding the clouds with this chemical compound. Um, I, I just never expected that. He didn't need it. 
he didn't need to include it to make this story, but it's one that just by including this, he just ties it into uh, just a really, really nice bow um, at the end. And then we get the epilogue. Um, he writes, and that's about all I have to tell. Templeton was transferred to a unit at Boulder Community Health. A six-inch spike pierced his right lung before his mother could get into him. But Ursula shielded him from the worst of it, and he was released to a state foster care two weeks ago. Ursula herself had, I heard, 897 nails in her by the end. She was a red carpet full of stuck full of blades. I hope she died knowing her boy was going to live, that she had saved him. What she did to us, to the world, to the sky is unforgivable, but I wouldn't want any mother to die feeling that she'd failed to protect her child. So again, um, there's a balance here. Um, there's a balance between um, accountability and compassion. Um, justice and cruelty are not the same, and knowing that, and knowing that is the difference between being right in your head and being someone like Ursula Blake. That's something to take away. This was all five weeks ago, and as you know, in the time since, the sparkle dust has coated the entire troposphere. The last rain that was water, not nails, fell on the coast of Chile in mid-September. The only other precipitation since then has been radioactive ash. Our armed forces newt Georgia, wiping out the firm that had developed Charlie Blake's vision of crystal rain and annihilating most of the scientists who might have been able to reverse the process. ISIS fell for fake news claiming that the crystal rain was the work of Jewish scientists and launched rockets at Israel. In response, Israel obliterated Syria with half a dozen warheads. They leveled Tehran while they were at it. Russia took advantage of the international chaos to storm the Ukraine. In Jakarta, it rained nails with the size of broadswords and killed nearly 3 million people in an hour, which was almost as bad as a nuke. The president's latest move has been to offer tin umbrellas on its website store. $9.99 a pop, made in China. Admit it. This guy knows how to turn a buck. Um, so it is, it, it, the, like I said, this is a story that firmly takes place in our time period right now, not two years ago. You know, I've been joking. For those of you who have been catching the joke, I've been saying we have seven more years. Um, I don't know if this is a story that can take place. Um, hopefully, this is a story that will look ludicrous two years from now or four years from now or five years from now. Um, hopefully, this will be this one day will be read um, as something that could never be and uh, really be questioned and Hopefully someday it'll be read uh, and be seen as just a little bit too absurd. Unfortunately, it's all a little too real right now. All every event that I just read playing out, I it's not hard to imagine that it's playing out. Now, here's the deal. This is why Joe Hill is Joe Hill. In a lesser writer's hands, it would have just been a story about needle rain, which is you know, like I said, it's a crazy concept, and it would have been worth reading no matter what. But in Joe Hill's hands, it's a commentary on our current state of existence in the United States of America and the world. Okay, I'll get to that in a second. But knowing that this is a story that is concluding four stories that are all very loaded for this particular time period, he weaves them all together in a way that I had not expect, that I did not expect. And he gets that on 427. So see if you can pick out the references. I remember how Yolanda used to send me photographs of clouds and tell me what she saw when she looked at them. This one was an island paradise for the two of us, where we would live the rest of our days in hula skirts feeding each other pineapple. That one was a big smoky gun that we would use to shoot the moon. Another was God's own camera 
taking a picture of us when we kissed. All I'll ever see when I look at the clouds from here forward is weapons of mass destruction. It's all there, guys. All of it. The references to cameras and pictures. Looking at clouds and dreaming of lives that we don't live. Like a loft. Um, or, you know, and snapshot the cameras and the pictures. And then loaded. Um, this one was a big smoky gun that we would use to shoot down the moon. And with both loaded and rain, uh, looking at clouds from here forward is just weapons of mass destruction. All, everything that he's written in the 426 preceding pages all just is thematically wrapped up here. Um, and it just shows that this is not just for... Um, timeless or um, untethered from time stories that these are four stories that very much are about the, the, the world in which we live right now. And and as I've been saying, um, though it appears to be hopeless, the situation seems hopeless, in the end, there is glimmer of hope. Now, this is less about Joe Hill writing about um, the characters in a story about needle-sharp rain. Um, This is Joe Hill um, really writing about our world right now. Now, the state of our country, um, as you know, um, is uncertain. It is uh, dangerous, more dangerous for um, certain demographics uh, now than it was one year ago. Um, there are people that are living here that, that might not be living here um, a year from now. Um, there's just a lot of uncertainty and there is a lot of tension in this country right now. Um, there's a lot of fear across the world because of the um, contention that is coming from within our country at the moment. Now, Joe Hill makes the point to invoke the word hope so clearly at the end. It, to me, connotes a word that is firmly linked with our previous president, um, Barack Obama. It makes you think of Barack Obama's audacity of hope. And in the current age of political cynicism in which we are existing, um, outside of this book but in real life, I, I do believe that President Obama's true legacy is establishing itself, um, which is one of humanitarianism, um, of, of youthful political activism and and the inherent want to actually help others and be empathetic. Um, So while the conclusion to this story isn't necessarily about political idealism, it it, it does involve the entire world holding its breath and, and holding out hope. You know, despite the fact that the actions of a rash, unstable woman has led to possible... Um, irreversible, continual natural catastrophes. And despite uh, the fact that the actions of a rash, unstable president has caused the deaths of millions of people in nuclear annihilation, despite the act that the actions of singular individuals cause the world to suffer, those still in this world do not lose sight of hope itself. And this feels, to me, like Joe Hill's way of saying... That through hope and being together, we're going to weather this storm. This storm, of course, not being one of needle-sharp brain, but of being our current political nightmare that we currently find ourselves living in. So in the end, this is a story that isn't about weather. It's not about weather at all. 
It's about the things that we take for granted. It's the norms that make up our everyday existence and how they can be turned, twisted, and become unrecognizable, whether these things be, um, like I said, our common decency, civility, our rights, um, or in this case, the very reign itself. It might not appear on the surface to be a political story, and you know, I know right now, if anyone is still listening, um, I mean, there's going to be some listeners, there's going to be readers of this book um, who don't want to read politics in stories about razor-sharp rain. But that is missing the point, and I get it. If your political beliefs run counter to Hill's beliefs, which are very liberal— then this is going to be a challenging um, read, and it's going to take away from the enjoyment of the story. But like I said, this entire collection is charged with politics, rain almost more so than loaded. Um, just look at it from this perspective, guys, if you're questioning me on, on my assertion of what this novel really is. But look at it from this perspective. In this story, Hill purposefully places together a lesbian, religious zealots, a Russian, and a helicopter parent all under the same rainstorm together. These characters are plucked from our real world, and the storm itself is just a metaphor for the current political landscape. We're all different. All these characters couldn't be any more different from one another, but we're all just trying to exist um, in a downpour that we found ourselves in. So that is Rain, um, and and is the concluding story to... uh, to a collection I think that is aptly named, Strange Weather. There's definitely strange weather out there, guys. So just make sure that you dress accordingly. So there's a couple uh, Stephen Kingisms uh, within uh, this uh, story. And Boulder, Colorado, of course, there's an end-of-the-world scenario and weather. Um, so uh, the end-of-the-world scenario we've seen before in um, uh, The Stand and The Mist and Cell are just a couple to name a few. The Fireman for Joe Hill. Boulder, of course, is uh, a location that Joe Hill had spent some time living in um, and also featured very heavily in The Stand, another end-of-the-world uh, novel. Um, and then Weather um, in The Mist, in Rainy Season, in Storm of the Century. These are all um, stories that in, involve uh, nasty weather uh, with a supernatural bent and that we see that here. So... Guys, um, I really enjoyed, really enjoyed uh, Strange Weather. I strongly recommend it um, to anyone reading. Each one of these four stories is potent and powerful and different from one another, and just all of them are incredibly uh, well-written. And, um, you know, each one of these could could make for um, incredible movies. And... um, Again, I just uh, for those of you who don't necessarily show um, share um, Joe Hill's beliefs, um, it's going to be harder. It's going to be a more challenging read. Um, but you know, even if you you share different beliefs and you did read Strange Weather and you share different beliefs and you're still listening to this podcast, thank you. Um, that is more open-minded than I myself, I myself um, find myself. So I do appreciate the fact that you're willing to listen to another um, perspective. All right, everyone. Um, every story in here is not always the easiest to get through, but they are all definitely worth reading. So this was a longer episode, guys, at two hours and almost 
five minutes. So this is uh, been a while since I've gotten over the two-hour mark, but I think there was a lot to be said about these stories. So if you haven't read Short Weather or Strange Weather, go out, go out right now and buy it. It's definitely worth your time. And this has been a blast um, reading it. It's been a blast talking about it. So I don't know what my next step is for the Stephen King cast, but there will be another episode um, as I release this. It is the, the weekend of Martin Luther King. Um, so I, I hope to get another one out by January. Like I said, um, in the spring, by the spring, uh, I'll be back up and running um, full time. So I'll have Stephen King full time and I will have a limited Twin Peaks um, full-time as well. So there's a lot of great stuff um, from the Stephen King cast and hanging with Agent Cooper. So again, anyone out there that is artistically inclined um, and you want to whip up a hanging with Agent Cooper uh, logo, that would be much appreciated. Thank you, everybody. Okay, everyone. So in the meantime, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. If you haven't uh, done so already, I would love to get your thoughts. And any reviews to uh, Stephen King cast on iTunes is really going to help out the podcast. So um, please do so if you haven't done that. And uh, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I'll see you here next time where M O O N spells Stephen King cast.